This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. It's been one of those weeks where contemporary media standards have been on sharp display amidst big debate about appropriate conduct these days from the Fourth Estate, which of course now includes social media. A handful of stories is generating a lot of heat and noise. First, the decision by two popular mainstream news websites to republish vicious social media trolling of one of the most ABC's most respected female TV presenters, news breakfast host Lisa Miller. Another was, again, the recirculation by the same two outlets, news.com.au and the Daily Mail website, of the online response to Brittany Higgins' personal post this week about her new Gold Coast residence. While over at the broadsheet, City Morning Herald and The Age, owned by Nine Fairfax. A series of front-page stories speculating on or really specifically predicting war with China in three years' time prompted pretty widespread dismay, including furious responses from former Prime Minister Paul Keating, but he wasn't alone. Now, the media is often the venue for ventilating changing tastes and attitudes. So where does this week take us? Two seasoned observers of the media join me, Monica Attard, um, a former ABC journalist and award-winning foreign correspondent, Media Watch presenter, now the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at Sydney's University of Technology. And Matthew Rickardson is an ex-Melbourne journalist and long-time commentator who now lectures in journalism. Good morning to you both. Morning, Good morning. Look, what seems to have really upset the ABC, who hit back very firmly in the Lisa Miller case, I'd suggest to you, was the decision by mainstream media to give oxygen to a particularly grubby underside of social media, namely trolling towards prominent women. In other words, to sort of republish these revolting responses. Now, does that decision by news.com.au and the Daily Mail strike you, first to you, Monica, as stepping over some important lines? Uh, well, I certainly think it's a it's a it's a pretty significant development. I don't know that the ABC has gone this far in the past in uh, in defending its um, its employees. You, you know, we all know that that that. that both Lisa and before her, Lee Sales, who, uh, and both of them have dumped Twitter, have both copped an awful lot of trolling over the years. And, um, you know, the ABC's response has by and large been, well, you don't have to be there. Uh, and, and in fact, it's advised journalists to not be there. It has a, To be on a, social media. To be on social media where it can, you know, where, where the trolling occurs. Um, so I, I think this is a really big step forward for the ABC and it's, a, I think, a very welcome one as well. It's 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 fantastic because it is kind of setting a, another standard, one that it can't impose on other media, but it, it's certainly saying, you know, we do not think, the, the national broadcaster does not think it is acceptable for a news media organisation when they are writing about a legitimate story, that is the trolling of women, women to amplify the offence and amplify the 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 troll-like tweets um, and, and thereby encourage people to do more of it or to copycat it, worse still. So, um, you know, I think it is setting a new standard of sorts. And it's kind of like, you know, when we when we went through that whole era of not writing, I'm, I'm not suggesting they're equated directly, but when, when there was a period of time when Australian media would, would um, openly write about 
suicide in, in ways that detailed how that occurred. And, um, you know, now that is entirely unacceptable and it, it, it breaches any number of standards that are uh, developed by media themselves and by outside organisations which control those standards. So things change, things develop, and I think this is an important step in um, in moving that change forward. Yeah, and, and there were bo- bomb threats was another one in my very bomb early days as a, as a young journalist and there was a sort of spate of them and they developed a code of, uh, voluntarily, well, you know, very much the police <laughs> asking about it for, for a very, if you were going to refer to it, it was very quick and you certainly didn't go into detail and you didn't mm. give um, oxygen to it. Uh, so, yes, that's another case. Suicide's uh, a very interesting example. Matthew, what do you think about this? Well, I was just thinking then as you were speaking, as you were both speaking, that family violence is another one of those areas where, you know, when I began as a young reporter, and I'm sure you, both of you too, you know, it was called a domestic and, and by and large, those events weren't publicised at all. Complete sea change on that in the last, you know, decade or so. True. Too much to the better, all to the better as well. So, yes, yeah, um, so that, so, I mean, the point is things uh, are not fixed in stone. That's your, your, your point. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So what do you think about this idea of republishing? Because I think that's at the core of why, of, 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 of this week. Um, yeah. Yes, no, no, I agree. And I think, I think we can go back a step and say, why, why did they publish it in the first place? Like there is a, a decision to be made you know, in in the editorial newsroom, um, do we publish this or not? That's a decision that is made, um, or do we broadcast it or not? That's a decision that is made in newsrooms every single day, hundreds and hundreds of times. So, you know, it's not like you're simply saying, oh, because it's out there, because the trolls are saying this stuff, we've got to say something about it. Oh, and by the way, we don't think it's a very good thing, because if you look at the Daily Mail's original headline, you know, they run these incredibly long headlines. You know, this one's about five lines long and it starts off with sickening Twitter trolls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you've still got a choice as to whether you choose to, to publish that or not. And I would argue you don't need to publish it. I mean, Lisa Miller has made it very clear, uh, as did Lee Sales before her, um, made it very clear um, why they got off Twitter. And one of the points they were making was it's not only affecting them personally and professionally, but, uh, you know, you don't need to engage in this stuff. Um, And there's a message there for the rest of the media. Why do you need to publish this in the first place? If the question I would ask, if if, if news.com.au or the Daily Mail were genuinely concerned about the effect that this kind of sickening trolling is happening, particularly towards female journalists, they would they would run a campaign about it. They would initiate stories saying, "This is not this is this is bad. This is having an effect on people. What are the regulatory standards? Can anything be done?" Like you would go on the front foot and and report and analyse and so on in the direction that you were wanting the matter to go in, rather than you know, what looks like that a version of that old stunt that used to be done, perhaps not so old, about the royal family, which was the tabloid newspapers in England would air the original, you know, grubby allegation, whatever it might have been, and then the the sort of high-minded broadsheet newspapers would come in afterwards and make all sorts of comments about it, but they would repeat the um, all of the grubby allegations, thereby, you know, just 
keeping the cycle going. Yes, uh, and look, um, and I might add, it's not not just female journalists, of course, or presenters or whatever. It's it's sort of, it, with monotonous regularity, you hear any uh, women who stick their head up above the parapet um, yes, seem to yes. be targets. And, I mean, maybe, you know, men are more too. Um, they... They, they are, Geraldine. I mean, look at Hamish MacDonald from uh, when he was presenting Q&A. He actually cited social media as being, you know, one of the reasons mm. that he he mm. didn't want to continue on the program because the, the trolling had become he did so uh, had had become so appalling. And and uh, I mean, sorry. Well, look, actually, what Matthew just referred to there, I think was very interesting because there were virtually parallel media communities with different codes if, in, in the you know, pretty recent past as well. Um, like the old Melbourne Truth, as a lot of listeners will remember the Melbourne Truth, or even the now defunct News of the World in the UK, regularly aired all sorts of salacious material. That was their business model, which very rarely entered the more established outlets in their respective zones. That was the convention, unless there was an extraordinary story, which occasionally the Melbourne Truth did have. I mean, has that shifted, do you think, Monica? Is there some definite shift here which needs to be named and then maybe rectified? Well, uh, I mean, the shift is is clearly digital and then, of course, on top of digital social media. Uh, You know, has there been a shift? Well, you know, just like in those days, there was the kind of salacious end of the media. There is these days, and it is also their business model. I mean, the Daily Mail's business model is salaciousness um, and, and, and publishing, you know, details on stories that that few other media organisations would ever go to. I mean, I note even with the Lisa Miller story, even though news.com.au published a story with the comments originally, they then took the comments out of the story. They kept the story up, but they took the actual tweets out of the story. So there was kind of some level of insight there that perhaps... Self-correction. Was that that in response, Monica, to the ABC statement, I wonder? Yes. According to the timing, yes, it was. So, I mean, I think that's... That was an interesting. For me, that was kind of interesting because, you know, every media organisation has its internal standards, its editorial policies, its ethics parameters within which it will work, um, and then of course the ones that are imposed by by a dizzying array of outside organisations. But, um, you know, I think I think that. I'm not sure that things have changed all that much, Geraldine, in response to your question. Mm. I think that there will always be in the media media ecosystem, you know, a spectrum of organisations that produce news according to the demands of their business model uh, and and the kind of propensity of their owners and edit, and, and editorial leaders. But and I, yeah, but but I suppose what I'm really intrigued by is whether that does shift because I think Matthew. There's a lot of hand wringing that nothing can be done about trolling. That's the classic, you know, phrase that you see again and again. But in fact, we are talking here about subtle shifts. Do you think there could be subtle shifts, almost new little codes develop about what will, even in the places that you know have a business model to be relatively sensational? Well, I think there uh, there should be. Now, I'm I'm not going to say it's a simple matter because social media and the internet in general has already proven itself to be very difficult to regulate, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And, I mean, I'm thinking if, if you know, when people do, as you say, ha- you know, wring their hands about that and then throw them up in the air and say nothing can be done, um, just cast your mind back a couple of years to when the previous federal government, the coalition government, actually introduced the news media mandatory bargaining code. Now, that was about 
um, persuading the the you know the big tech behemoths to pay for some of the content that the that journalistic outlets provide. Mm. Nobody thought that could be done before it was done. It's it's you know there's there's a whole lot of issues with that code by the way, but that's another story. But the point is that it was done. It was done in the face of vehement opposition from Facebook and, to a lesser extent, Google. It happened. It's now being picked up in other parts of the world. So something, things can be done, and that's at that level. And at the internal level, in news organisations themselves, there could be you know, more work done to actually to work on those sorts of internal codes in the ways that, mm. that both you and Monica have already suggested about reporting on suicide and so on like like we we are sentient human beings we can do some of this ourselves we don't have to always mm. wait for government to do something so there's a, i think there is some a lot more that can be done than is being done. Um, one of our texters has written, Bruce, no press standards will ever outweigh sensationalism. It sells. Look at Fox in the US. Well, of course, if you do look at Fox in the US at the moment, Monica, it's just totally fascinating how it's they're sort of reaping what they've sown um, and we'll just see quite where that heads. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yes, that has been that's been a great uh, television drama to watch. You know, as it unfolds, actually. But you know, that issue of um, that issue of of the role that social media, the impact that social media is having on on the news production cycle, I think is a really really interesting one, um, because increasingly we see at all across all media that there are very, very few outlets that don't use social media as a cue for the production of news. And and I think that is not something that you can control, uh, that government can control. That is, an, as Matthew says, that is where you rely on an organisation to have some, you know, some, some yeah. to place ethical boundaries around its journalists. Now, look, I just want to go to the other story that really consumed a lot of attention this week was the, um, the series called Red Alert, the uh, Sydney Morning Herald Age series, which cites the opinions of a group of five commentators and analysts regarding China and Australia's preparedness for conflict, all amidst very vivid graphics. And they say we should expect to be in a war with China in three years. In other words, it was pretty specific. Now, Matthew, what was your judgment? Is this re- is this reporting of worth? Oh, look, I think this one's a, a difficult one because, I mean, I, I heard the, well, I read the former Prime Minister Paul Keating's um, pronouncement about it. You know, he's mm. in a much better position in some ways to judge this than me. But I think one of the things I was concerned about was originally was that they they ran this series of articles without much in a way of framing it as in framing what they're doing. And but actually on the first day they did run their editorial set out what they were trying to do and why they were doing it and so on. So I think the problem is that they you know they devoted a lot of editorial weight to it. That is, it was several pages each day for three, three days. days. Mm-hmm. And it was, as you say, Geraldine, it was, we are going to be at war with China within three years. It was pretty specific. And I think on a, such a, both a delicate and and not unknown, but very difficult to get your head around topic like, you know, international geopolitics and the shifts and where's it going and so on. Being so specific is is a bit of a flag and and perhaps sent readers, you know, in one direction rather than, you know, rather than actually considering this in its complexity. Because I think the the five people who were their panel 
all seem to be in heated agreement with each other. And if, if there's one thing I know, and I don't know a great deal about international geopolitics, it's that there's a lot of disagreement about it and a lot of contention and argument and, you know, into the weeds and the nuances and so on. So I think that was one of the issues that I had with it. Uh, Monica, your thoughts? Yeah, look, reasonably similar. I mean, I think it's perfectly legitimate, of course, to to ask the question about Australia's national security. You know, uh, if we were to become embroiled in a war between the, the United States and China, are we prepared for that? But I think it has to be done responsibly. I mean, in this, these pieces, I think they tended, they were asserting claims as facts. I think that's extremely dangerous, particularly with this subject material. Um, you know, the assertion, the, the, the claim that, that we will be at war within three years was, was literally asserted as fact. And so they were based on the opinions of these analysts rather than any real investigation or prosecution of what they were saying. And I found that kind of surprising coming from those particular authors and from that stable. Um, and, and of course, there was a, a real alarmist tone to all of them. Um, and coming as they do ahead of this, this, this defence review and the announcement that we're expecting on Tuesday from the Prime Minister about Arcus, you know, they do they do give the impression that all of those factors were linked. And, and that is slightly disturbing as well. I think Paul Keating's, one of Paul Keating's main points in his splenetic response was that there was not one single China specialist uh, if they were talking about worries of China, because that, that they weren't talking about that. I really think they were talking about defence preparedness. And it was a very, I mean, it, 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 there wasn't balance, but there was a sort of a, almost like uh, they say they wanted to galvanise rather than uh, terrorise or to put fear in people's minds, but it was very much a sense of where are we in our defence preparedness? That was really, I think, the angle. It's just that it, it wasn't a debate, was it? It wasn't a debate. There was there was a... a, a, a... A lack of the lack of balance was very, very apparent. I mean, all the panelists, as you say, seem to agree with each other. Perhaps there are no military defence experts in Australia who actually disagree with the contention that wars around the corner. Who knows? But if it there would be are, worth pointing so, out. But but if, where if, where have the out. opinion pieces been that that could have been run? You know, during the week. You know, if you want to kick off a debate, there could have been some more opinion pieces run in in either the Sydney Morning Herald or the Age from a range of perspectives, so that you can then at least say you know, we've kicked off an important debate. Uh, so do you think that, as one of our texts has just come in, a very important point, that actually Twitter did allow a very good commentary on the robo-debt um, discussion and Twitter users had taken a very keen interest and Miss, uh, the uh, Commissioner Holmes complimented Twitter users on their interest. Uh, mm -hmm. So, the, you know, ma and mainstream media did not, they said, is not interested in robo-debt because it's about poor people. This is our texter who don't count in Australian society. So that's a very interesting um, perspective on Twitter. Well, well it is, yeah. it is. And there's a couple of things to say there about, one is that I, I agree with the texter that the mainstream media has not covered robo the robo-debt Royal Commission particularly thoroughly. I mean, Rick Morton at the Saturday paper is a kind of shining exception there. And indeed, he to pick up the other part of the point that the texter has made, has been has been live blogging at the Royal Commission in recent weeks. And so he's not only been doing his daily reporting or his weekly reporting for the Saturday paper and his longer pieces for the monthly, he's been live blogging it as well, using the kind of what the internet enables you to do as a reporter, um, all to the good. Okay. And, and Twitter, as we know, in its early years and until its more recent kind of explosion under Elon Elon Musk, you know, was a, was a kind of a, 
a place where a lot of really smart and well-informed people, as well as fruit yes. bats, got together and, and critiqued what was going on in the mainstream media to very good effect. All right. Look, um, we just decided to prompt you all <laughs> by this discussion because there's no sort of perfect answers. This is what's so interesting about it. So Monica Rathard and uh, Matthew Rickardson, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Uh And uh, we're going to switch our focus now, and I do thank you for your really thoughtful texts. Switch focus to discuss the law of the sea. I wonder if you realise that two-thirds of the world's vast expanse of ocean sits outside the jurisdiction of any nation, which has made protecting the high seas and their abundant marine diver- biodiversity nigh on impossible. However, last weekend there was a major breakthrough. After years of tense negotiations, UN member countries agreed on a high seas treaty to place 30% of open ocean into marine protected areas by 2030. And there's a lot of excitement in conservation circles that this could improve protection of marine life in international waters, where all countries have the right to fish and do research, meaning there's a lack of protection from overfishing. Now, once ratified, the treaty will also become part of the law of the sea. That's an area of law most of us are probably unaware of. So the history of humanity's efforts to govern the oceans is really a fascinating one. It's been set out in a new book titled The Poseidon Project, The Struggle to Govern the World's Oceans. The authors, Professor David Bosco from uh, Indiana University, uh, and uh, David, you're certainly, I'm welcoming you now, you're certainly quite a distance from the ocean in Indiana. Anna, you must have done a fair bit of field work in gathering information for this book. I, I like to think that in Indiana, I'm kind of impartial as between the different oceans. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I did I did quite a bit of research in in libraries, to be honest. But uh, but also, uh, you know, a, a fair number of interviews with folks. Maybe you could start by telling us about the development of the doctrine of the law of the sea. Take us back to the 15th century and a young lawyer called Hugo Grotius. And there's some important context to understand here, isn't there? Yeah, it's a fascinating history. So if we go back to that period, it's really the Spanish and the Portuguese who are kind of leading the way in terms of ocean exploration. And and they actually come up with a treaty that divides the world's oceans between the two of them. And this is with the involvement of the Pope. And um, they actually draw a line in the sea and say kind of this side is Spain and this side is Portugal, which leaves everybody else out. And so it's the Dutch who challenge that claim and they want to get involved in the Indian Ocean trade. And uh, the Portuguese tell them, no, you can't be here. This is basically our ocean. And so the Dutch, you know, resort to force and they actually seize a Portuguese vessel and auction off its contents. And, and that's where Grotius comes into the story, because the Dutch want to make a legal argument as to why they're allowed to go wherever they want on the ocean. And so Hugo Grotius, who I think was all of uh, 22, 23 years old at the time, is hired to write that legal brief, essentially. And um, that's where he puts forward this famous doctrine of the freedom of the seas, that basically the ocean should be open to everybody and no country should be able to to claim them. And that has a really important influence then, uh, you know, as we get to the present day on, on the law of the sea. Had there been any laws or norms governing human activity before Mare Librum, which was his treatise on the subject? 
There had been some, but you know, we have to remember we're talking about a period where mostly use of the oceans was close to shore. The ability of of you know humans to use the kind of distant ocean was rather limited, and so in that sense, it, it you didn't need a lot of regulation because there wasn't a lot of traversing of oceans. But yeah, there were there were certainly codes, of, particularly about you know merchants and and what rules would govern merchants, you know, things like what happens if there's a shipwreck, who pays for the lost cargo, those kinds of things. The Romans, of course, had at one point encircled the entire Mediterranean. And so they had some important rules and norms governing um, the ocean. But in many ways, the bigger question of how we govern the oceans as a whole was really being developed around that time of growth because it was only then that humans were understanding the full scope of the oceans. I mean, there's a long interlude, isn't there, between Grotius and the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and, you know, two world wars, incredible developments. What was the impetus, would you say, that led to that treaty? Right. And the treaty, as you mentioned, was signed in the early 1980s, but they started negotiating it. I mean, they really started the process of negotiating it in the late 1950s. And so it was a long, long process, you know, whole generations of diplomats worked on that, uh, on that process. But basically what had happened was Grotius had made this argument about the freedom of the seas, which was very persuasive to many people and had become basically the kind of foundation for the law of the sea that existed at that point. But around the time of the world wars and then, you know, the second half of the 20th century, human ability to use the oceans and control the oceans has really increased exponentially. And during the world wars, for example, some of the combatants were able to close off essentially huge portions of the ocean. We had the phenomenon of unrestricted submarine warfare, which put enormous strains on on international commerce, uh, maritime trade. And then right after World War II, the United States actually acting pretty much on its own made these claims that they get to control the continental shelf, that kind of shallow area that extends from the continent. Um, And they said unilaterally, we control that. And that led to a whole round of other national claims to controlling ocean space. So some of the Latin American countries said, okay, then if you're going to do that, we have a 200-mile territorial sea that we get to control. And so the whole state of the law was really in chaos. If we look at the 1950s, 1960s, there's just all sorts of different claims being made. And that was the impetus then for this treaty negotiation to try to establish some basic norms um, and some framework for the international community. Well, and interestingly, there are 168 signatories to the treaty now, but it doesn't include the United States. That's right. And of course, you know, the phenomenon of the United States not signing on to major international treaties is not new. But the United States played a critical role in the in the negotiation of the treaty. And this is kind of a pattern with the U.S. where they, they get heavily involved in the negotiations and then at the last minute kind of decide not to sign on. And the U.S. is actually OK with and, and really supports the basic framework created by the treaty 
which says, okay, you get a 12-mile territorial sea. Every country can claim 12 miles. You get a 200-mile exclusive economic zone where you can control fishing and other economic uses. These were, this was the basic compromise created by the treaty. And the United States is fine with that. What they don't like and what led them not to sign was these provisions for international control of seabed mining. Um, right. How? But can right, I can you know, I just how, come in? Well, yeah. Because ironically, <laughs> you know, the business of America is business. Obviously, that's what pertains there. But they like <laughs> the freedom of the seas when when U.S. naval exercises uh, are at stake. You know, a la yes. sailing through the South China Sea, and they're called. You know, Australia's often called on to take part in them, called freedom of navigation yeah. operations. So, I mean, this is a little um, contradictory, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it is in some ways. So basically, right, the U.S. position is we are kind of the lead defender of freedom of the seas and freedom of navigation. And they say what we're defending is the basic international rule book, which lays out, you know, how far a country can claim into the ocean. And so what we see with you, just as you mentioned, the freedom of navigation operations, U.S. warships, often sometimes joined by others, will travel through areas of the South China Sea where, you know, China is making claims and say, no, we're allowed to go here. We're allowed to go here by the treaty. Uh, We have that freedom and we're going to travel through um, to show that we have that freedom. So that part of what the U.S. is doing is arguably consistent with the law of the sea. But what the United States cannot abide is this international structure for managing seabed mining. I mean, it's about power by the sound of it. You know, that's what I'm hearing right back to the 15th century. People yeah. sort of exert themselves, um, muscle their way in and yes. get their way. Well, this is an important thing that I think sometimes the United States doesn't recognise when it talks about, you know, the importance of freedom of the seas. There is a huge element of power here. And the British realized this, too, because the British had become, you know, if we go back to the early 19th century, they, too, were talking a lot about freedom of the seas. And for the largest naval power, freedom of the seas has a real benefit for them because their ships, then their warships can basically go almost anywhere on the oceans and they can project power on the oceans. Um, And so some of what you see now you know, is China saying, we're not comfortable with your aircraft carriers coming so close. And and some other countries actually share China's point of view, although China is acting in such a kind of reckless way in some respects that it's hard for them to gin up much of a coalition. Um, But yeah, there's a huge element of power here and and the interests of kind of the leading maritime power to be able to go Mm. where they want on the oceans. There are a range of countries you point out to to us uh, with exclusive economic zones. Iran, Pakistan, yes. certainly not a powerful country, India, Thailand, Malaysia are yes. all falling into that category. And yet China's the one particularly targeted, which, of course, does make one think about, again, big geostrategic competition. So does that that's sort of yes. still a dominating force despite this treaty, is it? It is. It is. But and what you're pointing out is exactly correct, that some of these other countries um, also make claims that the U.S. believes are out of keeping with the law of the sea. Like you can't send your military ships into my exclusive economic zone. The U.S. view is, you know, that violates the, the law of the sea. 
And there's, you know, some legal debate that can be made about this. I think the U.S. actually has the better of the argument there. But the point is that many of these countries are uncomfortable having another country's navy be able to get so close to its coast. And the U.S. will sometimes challenge those claims, too. It's the ones with China get the most attention. But the U.S., you know, not long ago sent a ship through India's exclusive economic zone, too, just to show that it could. But for sure, the, the dynamic with China right now is the is the centerpiece of kind of this struggle about what the rules for the ocean are going to be. But look, there are just sort of really coming towards the end. There are two other key areas, the seabed mining which is, you know, the yeah. technology for which is becoming more and more available. And you wonder, you know, that'll presumably be only the wealthiest nations and companies that can do that. So how's that going to be monitored? And environmental protection. I mean, whose responsibility is it to protect the waters yes. and the animals and the seabeds of international waters? Anybody's? Yeah, that's a great, great point. These are, I, I agree with you. I think these are the two main challenges going forward. Seabed mining, as I mentioned, has this international structure in place. And there's a kind of obscure international agency based in Jamaica, which has responsibility for licensing and regulating any deep seabed mining. But really, that industry is just on the cusp of becoming an actual you know, going concern. And so whether that international structure is going to work is something we're going to see, I think, in the coming years. On the environmental front, there's a big negotiation going on right now up at the UN on trying to increase environmental protections for the high seas, because just as you say, there's not a lot in that treaty, that 1982 treaty, about protecting the environment, particularly, you know, the high seas. And so there's a, a, a complex effort to try to create new regulations for that. There are all these regional fishing organizations which have sprung up, which try to, and, and Australia has been a, you know, an active participant in some of them, where they try to regulate fishing in a particular area of the oceans. But I would say our infrastructure for protecting the high seas from an environmental standpoint is really at the kind of very rudimentary level right now. Uh, and look, I mean, what about unmanned shipping, uh, which is currently yep. being developed? You know, does the treaty need to be amended to take that into account? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of things on the technological front that have to be tweaked. But as as we know from so many different areas, the effort to create binding international rules when you're talking about getting 160, 170 countries together is a long and arduous process. And that's why in some situations you've got smaller groups of countries that have decided, fine, we're just going to do this on our own um, and create mm -hmm. some rules that bind this group rather than the whole group. But then you've got the problem of if you do that, say, with fishing, what happens if some other country wants to come in and fish in that area? They can say, we're not bound by what you agreed to. Um, so this is a dilemma is that, you know, we end up with kind of a lowest common denominator when, you, when you're talking about the large international negotiations. How very interesting. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Professor David Bosco. He's Associate Professor of International Studies at Indiana University and his book is called The Poseidon Project, The Struggle to Govern the World's Oceans. It's an Oxford University Press publication. Uh, and I hope you can stay with me here on Saturday Extra. Um, 
just one text, a lot of texts have come in as a result of our discussion. One text that said simply, what about our preparedness for peace? Why can't we have series on that? Yes, well, <laughs> maybe they'll come. Next up here, a look at some of the first anthropologists and their colourful, unconventional, free-thinking lives. Last this week, to what you might call combined macro and micro history, a new work that follows 12 great anthropologists over 50 years, from the 1880s to the 1930s, and the discipline that evolved out of their remarkable lives. What did they think they were doing? They all lived with and observed Indigenous people in what were then considered some of the most far-flung and exotic corners of the globe, from Brazil's impenetrable jungles to Arctic snowfields and beyond, places above all, though, not, quotes, tainted by modern development. Again, why do this? Well, the answer's complicated, and the English writer Lucy Moore has wrestled with some of them in her new book called In Search of Us, and I'm happy to welcome her to Saturday Extra to discuss this fascinating work. Hello there. Hello. Uh, I have uh, to ask you what led you to write this book and base it around these great characters. Um, do you know, it was suggested to me. I've written other books um, in the past, which I thought of myself. And in this case, somebody who worked um, for a, uh, a museum in London suggested that uh, the in, the 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 moments of fieldwork which really cover this period from the kind of 1890s through to the 1930s the sort of first stage of anthropological fieldwork might make a great book she was really thinking of malinowski um mm. sailing up to the trobriand islands um and in the introduction to his book about that written in 1922 which comes out in 1922 he talks about being dropped off um in a sort of little bit of paradise all alone for an adventure to kind of discover the roots of mankind. And um, so it was an idea of exploring that sense of adventure and exploration, uh, which now we look at in a very different way. Well, quite. I mean, I think there was an effort, was there not, correct me at any point if I get my language wrong, to sort of create a science of society based on human universals, as it's, I think you describe it, which is a very neat way of... Because it's a very diffuse... It's a diffuse discipline. I did it at uni and I loved it, but I had uh, it was very subtle, shall I say, in learning about it. <laughs> yes, it does. It covers literally everything. It's the, the history of the study of mankind. One modern anthropologist described thinking about anthropology as a bit like thinking about a kind of symphony orchestra, lots of different bits, doing lots of different things in lots of different ways. Uh, but at this stage, um, you've had the armchair anthropologists who are the, the great sort of... Uh, General Pitt Rivers, Bernard Tyler, James Fraser in Oxford and Cambridge. And they're very much working from libraries in their armchairs. People send material back to them. And they then uh, worked out theories of what they thought um, primitive man was and how societies had developed. And then you get in the late 19th century, a rush of sort of scientific a scientific approach to these studies. And anthropology really emerges as a discipline in its own right. And so the, the first uh, great anthropologists in this period come from scientific backgrounds. The one uh, who went to Australia and studied in what were then part of the colony of Australia was Alfred Haddon, who went out to study mollusks. 
Rocks in New Guinea. And he then realised there was this incredibly rich culture there which needed to be studied before it disappeared. And it was very much a sense that these cultures were just going to be eradicated by the onwards march of progress and somebody needed to study them. And then you get someone like Margaret Mead in America calling primitive society essentially a laboratory for these, what they saw themselves as, as social scientists to study the changing patterns of society. And in that way, they thought in a very idealistic way that they would be able to learn lessons for how better we could live in the future. I mean, they were seeking um, noble aims, weren't they? They wanted to sh stress how much humans shared, even if they lived in dramatically different settings. So it, it had this quite idealistic tone behind it. I don't know whether they lived that out, but that was the, the sort of driver, wasn't it? It was very much the driver, and it was very much the idea that um, the differences between societies from a sort of a person in a, um, a, a South American tribe wearing a bit of string around their middle who's never seen a book and never um, sat at a table is exactly the same as a person wearing a top hat and spats. And what's really interesting about this book and also the idea that they are trying to demystify the idea that race is in some sense, sense biological race was cultural. It was not biological. So, Because colonialism was a really tricky thing for them to manage, wasn't it? Sometimes, you know, anthropology being called, has been called the handmaid of colonialism. So they had to sit, sit there and, and watch and observe, did they? They weren't supposed to interfere or intervene, observe without judgment. Was that it? Yes, absolutely. So in some ways, anthropology needed colonialism more than colonialism needed anthropology if that makes sense, because uh, for certainly for, for British-speaking um, anthropologists, the British Empire provided an incredible arena in which to practice their science. And that's why so many people, you know, Australia was the place to be for, for many of them or, or the Australian territories. Um, and it was thought and, and written about in the sort of si science of how to do good anthropology and how to do good field work, you needed to go somewhere five to ten years after European settlers had arrived because by then the native people who lived there would be used to foreigners and be able, you, you, could, you could learn the language and then you could interact with them. Colonial administrators and missionaries, who are the two other people who might have been there, weren't good at collecting the material. They might collect material objects, but they weren't good at collecting the spoken material because they had a, a mission there already because they had ulterior motives. The missionaries wanted to convert the people. They wanted to change the way they thought fundamentally. And the colonial administrators wanted to assimilate them into the colonies and make them sort of working and productive members of it, which also meant changing them completely. So the anthropologists who could go, sit, listen, find out, you know, what was going on in these societies were considered incredibly helpful, or they liked to present themselves as being helpful to the colonies because they were going to advise the colonial administrators on how best to um, administer these people. And in fact, 
it really didn't help anybody very much because they got there and they listened, but then the colonial administrators basically did what they wanted anyway. Look, uh, Lucy Moore's my guest, and she's written this uh, book about some mesmerising people in search of us, uh, 12 of the great anthropologists. Herodotus, you know, the great uh, Roman writer, he's often called the father of history. Uh, is he also seen as the father of anthropology? You, you, you wrestle with this a bit. Yes, absolutely. He He's, I mean... Anthropology in this sense as fieldwork has been going on since the earliest times. In fact, that's kind of the basis of how cultures change and develop. We look at other societies, we observe them, and we we assimilate with them, essentially. And that's the great propelling force, really, of cultural change through history. And so it's what we do instinctively, really, is, is look at other people, see what they're doing, observe. Do we like it? Do we not like it? Do we want to <laughs> go into battle mm. for some of these things? Or do we want to learn from the other people and and bring our two cultures closer together? Let's hop over a couple of these sort of definitions because it might help people. So there's this is a growth in something that became known as anthropology. But ethnological societies were established in the early 1800s when there was all of this efflorescence, you know, of interest and curiosity. What's the difference between ethnology and anthropology? Gosh, it is such a tricky one. And I kept, as I was writing the book, kept having to go back to those definitions. Essentially, they're incredibly close together. Anthropology means the science or the study of man. And ethnology means the science or study of groups and and tribes, essentially. And it's just a sort of earlier version, really meaning the same word. Ethnology often has to do with material culture. So it'll be objects and that sort of thing, which obviously people through the 19th century were collecting without much idea of their significance to the people they were taking them from, or, or, you know, they just saw them as you you might collect a a totem pole or, or, you know, a shield or a a canoe or something like that without realising the importance it would have to the people you were taking it from. One of your interests is Daisy Bates, who was a very interesting person to to include, a young British woman who moved to Australia in 1882, and we've actually looked at her on the program before. Uh, She's so interesting. Why did you decide to include her in your book? Because she wouldn't have thought of herself as an anthropologist. No, I I didn't. I I chose to use her partly because she was sort of came into opposition, really, with someone called um, Alfred Radcliffe Brown, who was a very famous British anthropologist, um, quite controversial. He's one of the early um, practitioners of what was called functionalism at this stage in anthropology. He's very austere and rigorous, devoted to the scientific method. He absolutely looked at the people he was studying as subjects, scientific, uh, you know, almost as if they, a bit like um, Alfred has his his uh, colleagues in the natural science, sciences looking at animals or mollusks or, or, you know, plants or something like that. And he comes to Australia in 1910, sent by the University of Cambridge, and he's put in touch with Daisy Bates, who's going to guide him through uh, the areas that by then she's been working in for over a decade in Western Australia to meet the, the tribes that she's been working with. And she absolutely, as you say, was not academic, would not have thought of herself as an anthropologist, but she did do what anthropologists do, which is sit with and speak to and learn about the people that she worked with. She was immersed. She was practicing um, participant observation before it even existed as a notion. And so I was fascinated by the contrast between the two of their 
their uh, oh, methods. He, he, he really took no. He just thought she was a sort of an amateur collector, didn't he? Absolutely. He, he dismissed all of her work as being completely unfit to be used in the book that she had been told she might be able to be part of that he was producing on this tour. He was, I mean, he was completely, as, some, as a colleague said, impenetrably wrapped in his own conceit. Um, he, he really doesn't come across well at all in any of the, in any of the sources. And, and by contrast, Daisy Bates, who completely self-taught and with incredible courage, just and, and sort of austerity herself. I mean, she just lived in the bush for years and years and years with people that she valued and loved, I'm sure, as individuals, although she doesn't write about them that much as individuals. But she, her life was given validation by the work she did with these people. And I just mm. really was touched by how if anthropology is a science, she was also doing it, but she took the science out of it and that made it much more human. Yes, and, and look, another chap, as we wind to a close, is dedicated to the real giant of anthropology, Margaret Mead. And, of course, she set particularly new standards with her travels to Samoa. Um, has she lasted, as it were? Like, you know, has there been a real uh, re-evaluation of her work or not? Well, she went to Samoa and she famously wrote a book um, about teenagers sort of love and, and, and growing up, adolescence in, in, in Western Samoa. And it transformed American culture, really, when she published it in the 20s. It, 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 it told people that basically sex before marriage was okay. Um, and it, 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 she was using anthropology very much as a, she was studying the unfamiliar, as we've talked about just before, in order to bring those lessons home and alter her society at home that she thought needed changing. So in many ways, her idealism was not about bettering the people that she was observing. It was about taking the lessons of their culture and applying them to her own. And she was she was evangelical about women, uh, women's rights and particularly within relations that 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 you know that she thought that she had been brought up in a patriarchy which was very um which condemned any kind of individuality particularly within relationships and 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 a kind of sexual life you know she was married several times she lived with women for much of her life she was a, a free thinker and a free liver um at a time when most people really weren't and she believed that the lessons that she was bringing back from the culture she studied would help her change her own society. And so for me, that that is not, you know, it's interesting. It's absolutely fascinating. And she's a brilliant writer and a brilliant communicator. But because she had this agenda, I, I think she's been sort of reappraised a little bit because of that. It was so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having an agenda, but um, and certainly not hers. <laughs> you know, there's nothing mm. wrong with what she was trying to bring up, bring about. But she, um, I think, she tried to 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 steer the material to support her argument. And you know, there's been debates about that. After she died, um, an anthropologist went into Samoa and said, "Of course, it's absolutely ridiculous. Samoa was completely Christian." When she went there, the people were just the girls that she interviewed were just children, and they were talking about sex in a very free and and sort of funny way because they thought that's what she wanted to hear. I think the truth lies probably somewhere in between. You know, she does sort of talk using the laboratory conditions, her words, provided by a, quotes, primitive society that lacked the, quotes, civilised complexities of written language and 
history and organised religion. And I, I suppose really that's what I'm intrigued by. Um, there's a lot of rank, isn't there, and hierarchy in anthropology, even oh, though yes. they say there isn't. <laughs> Absolutely. And particularly at this time, I mean, Margaret Mead writes home to her sister, I'm treated as a princess of a visiting village wherever I go. Malinowski delights in being carried around in a chair by his bearers, like the the the, the princes in um, in the Trobriand Islands. They absolutely had no idea that, that this was what they were doing. But when we look at it now with modern eyes, you just think how, how awful of them to presume their superiority. It's so deeply entrenched and then they have no idea they're doing it. Um, and of course... I suppose in some ways, I mean, they really thought these societies were going to actually disappear. And now I think we're much more concerned with allowing people to live in the way they want to live within within those communities that have been less touched by Western civilization. I mean, God, one just prays that some of them survive after all we've done mm. to destroy them, really. But, but what um, about in, going in back their... to societies to, to watch the ad- arrival of education, for instance? I mean, that was one of the real things I got out of thinking about this book. You know, does modern anthropology consider the study of groups that are being educated in the process of that? Is that considered part of the remit or not? I think this is something that begins in this period. So you have um, Audrey Richards, who goes out to Africa um, in the 30s, and she's very focused on studying a society, um, the, the Bemba people in modern Zambia, who are being transformed by their contact with um, the British Empire. And she is can completely see the negative things that are happening, and she wants to help them you know, live better lives and not have their society so kind of taken apart by by contact with modern industrialization and that sort of thing but uh nowadays people study mostly their own societies so we have a different a different view of it and i think it's less historical um in this period they're very much looking at the kind of remnants of what they saw as primitive society in order to to work out sort of where where societies had come from. And now it's, it's obviously much more to do with studying societies as they are and as they exist more today. Soci- sociology, really. Mm. Yes. Uh, look, thank you very much indeed. It's quite thought-provoking uh, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Geraldine. Lucy Moore, she's the author of In Search of Us. It's published by Atlantic Books. Now, it's been pointed out to me that Herodotus was a Greek historian, not a Roman historian. Apologies for that. He was actually born in Helicarnassus in Greece, now Bodrum in Turkey. And the Daisy Bates was Irish, not English. So there, that's been pointed out to me by helpful texters. So I appreciate it. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.